So we're going to continue this morning in this uh, series called Marked. And the, you know you've been here for a while that we're in the ninth chapter of Mark. And uh, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off. We're going verse by verse through this. Honestly, we can go a lot slower through this than what we're doing. I don't know if you um, read the, the Bible often. This week I actually have the opportunity. I love to listen to the Word while I read the Word or just listen to the Word sometimes. Sometimes when I read by myself, I get a little caught up. You know, I can't focus or whatever. And uh, I did it, and I was kind of surprised this week that, you know, you can listen to the whole text in less than two hours. That's all available for free for you. So if you've not read the book of Mark, I'd encourage you to read it. Maybe just listen to it while you're on a, you know, a walk or you're driving to work and back. I mean, in a commute almost, you could listen to the entire gospel of Mark. It's pretty powerful stuff. It makes a lot of those things connect, which is kind of why we're covering a lot of texts and, you know, instead of going super slow through the text so we can connect some things here. But I want to remind those, uh, all of us again, that we have now kind of come to this place in Jesus' ministry where he's kind of had this point of being recognized as the Messiah, and he is now setting his face for Jerusalem. And so everything left in the Gospel of Mark will be building toward this moment that Jesus has, this eternal moment he has on the cross. Like everything in his life is now turned toward Jerusalem, and we begin to see that more and more as he goes along in his life. So we're going to continue this morning. I'm going to pray as we get into the Word, and we're just going to kind of preach and talk through the Word this morning together, hopefully learning a few things maybe you hadn't thought of before, or refreshing some things that maybe we have taken for granted to this point. Uh, pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come together and worship you. Um, we know and we confess this is not the only time in our lives we can worship you, that you are ever-present, that we say in that song, that you'd be present with us, your Holy Spirit, but your Holy Spirit dwells in us and compels us to worship every day. And so, Father, we recognize that we're disciples, and we're growing, and we're worshiping you all the time with all of our actions and all of our thoughts and all of our words. But today we set this time aside just to kind of really listen intently to, to kind of try to block out the noise of the world. And there is a lot of it, Father, that we could hear your voice. I pray, Father, you would speak this morning. I pray you would speak to me and speak to others here that we could hear afresh uh, your good word for us. And I pray that it could matter in our lives. It wouldn't just be some Sunday morning, you know, high and holy thing, and then we go out in our lives and don't have any effect, but that your word would transform our minds, that it would renew our minds, and that we might become more faithful followers of yours and more complete, and even in this life, that we would find our fulfillment in you. May you be glorified. Only you can do this, so we ask you for it. We pray, Father, a prayer of thanks uh, for the way that you invite us into your kingdom work, and we pray that we would go willingly with you as our loving Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to jump in here. Mark chapter 9, verse 30, which is exactly where we left off last week. It's still on page 607, I think, or 706 in the uh, Bibles and in the chair rows, if you've got one of those. And we're just going to kind of jump right in where we left off um, after the transfiguration and the young man that was healed last week, the boy. Here we go, verse 30. They left that place and they passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. We're going to come back to that in a minute. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the road? And they kept quiet because they were, what they had argued about was who was the greatest. So right after this moment of, of healing, this moment of transfiguration on the mountain, they come down, and then Jesus begins to teach them again 
the disciples. Uh, we hear some redundancy here in the text this week, just like last. You remember, Jesus is always trying to, it seems to me, in the Gospel of Mark, get his disciples alone, specifically since Peter has said, you're the Messiah. Like, there's something in that reality for Jesus that he's like, you're, you're ready. When you understand that I'm the Messiah, you're ready for me to teach you deeply, but he needs them alone to do it. I say needs. It just seems to be what happens here. You remember last week, the transfiguration. They went up the mountain, what? Alone. That's where they went, to be alone on the mountainside. We talked about how Jesus would go alone and spend time in prayer with the Father. And, and here we have Jesus wanting again to go alone with the disciples. It says they were passing through Galilee, but he didn't want anyone to know they were passing through because he wanted them, uh, he wanted to teach his disciples. His primary goal was to teach his disciples. And so here they go again <clears throat> with um, Jesus. By the way, an interesting thing, I want to kind of throw this in, that, that I, I love family groups because we get to go deeper into what God's Word says. You know, not what the message was about, or, but what the Bible actually says. And this week, some things we discovered was the, spe the uniqueness of Peter, James, and John. It's actually throughout the Gospel of Mark. But until you um, kind of think about that, maybe you wouldn't catch it right away. So here, though, we have all these disciples. Matter of fact, he's going to give us a count in a minute. In a minute, like the next verse, he says he called the 12 to himself, right? So there's these, this group of, of people he's trying to instruct deeply in the Word and what it means. But here's the thing. For the third time, Jesus begins to teach them something that I would say because he teaches it repeatedly and he teaches it primarily, it's the most important thing he's trying to help his disciples understand. By the way, I take some things for granted here at Family Bible Church. We talked about it so much as a church family, but I want you all to know disciples are nothing more than learners. That's, the word disciple can sound so high and holy. Oh, they were the, the disciples. Look, it's the, the 12 disciples or it's the 72 that were sent out or, or whatever. And it's like they were, they were people, but they were just learning from Jesus. And the cool thing about that is that if you and I want to learn from Jesus, we too are disciples. Like the qualification is you want to learn. Do you want to learn? Then you're a disciple. And so Jesus began to instruct his disciples. And the primary thing he wanted his disciples to know is that the Son of Man must be killed and then on the third day, rise. You might go, yeah, I, I know, I've been in church. I get it, man. He had, but this is the primary teaching of Jesus to his disciples. Like if there's nothing else we understand about Jesus, what he wanted the disciples to know, you know, love one another and, and um, love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself and all these things we say, oh, that's the highest, that's the greatest, you know, teaching, right? But what you watch Jesus teach his disciples, he's like, the Son of Man must be, and the word here is killed, and then get this, the text actually doubles down on that and says, and having been killed, it's not in the NIV, and that's, that's fine, I love the NIV, but it's not in there, but it's in the Greek that way, and having been killed, he will rise. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus wants some time alone with his disciples, and for the third time now, he tells them the same exact thing. And you, I, we talked about this, right? His face is toward Jerusalem. His face is toward the cross. And he begins to tell those who he loves the most, who he's instructing the most, and who he's, who he's going to send out into the world as apostles, this is the most important thing. The Son of Man must be killed. And having been killed, will rise. Primary instruction from Jesus. Well, you might think, hey, I get that, Bill. I understand that Jesus had to die and then raised again. But, you know, if we read the text, it says... They didn't understand what he meant when he taught them this. 
the disciples who were with Jesus in the room, they didn't get it. Sometimes we just take it for granted. But yeah, I, I understand that. But isn't it interesting that those guys who were sitting there with him in the moment did not understand. And, and they wouldn't get this. What's to say? They were afraid to ask Jesus what it meant. I thought that was interesting. Not just that they didn't understand, well, why would you have to be killed? And how could you being killed to rise? And is it you? Who's the son of man, right? Like some questions that are burning in their hearts. And why are you telling us this right now, Jesus? Because we're having a pretty good time hanging out with you all by ourselves here and doing miracles and stuff. And why? I just saw you transfigured. Why, why, why is this the, why do you want us to know this so much? But all those questions, they're afraid to ask. They have a phobia. I wonder why. I really wonder why. Like what has Jesus demonstrated to them that they should fear asking him a question? Or were they afraid of knowing the answer? Well, just don't ask him about it because he's probably going to tell us the truth. And who wants the truth? Don't ask. Uh, uh, by the way, the word says that they wondered but didn't ask. And that makes me believe that they were probably wondering to each other. What does that mean? I don't know what it means. You were, li were you listening when he taught that? What is he, what's he talking about? So there's this weird thing where the disciples were willing to talk to each other about something, but not talk to Jesus about it. I wonder in your own life, are you like that at all? Are there things in your life you go, I just don't get it. I've I, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but I just don't get this. And we spend all kind of time discussing it amongst, well, what could that mean? Well, what does that mean? But we do not, or we rarely, I should say, because I know some, some of us do, some of you do, but we rarely turn to God and go, God, I don't get it. What does that mean? Jesus, I don't understand this one thing. What does that mean? What is that about? Here's a good one. Jesus, I'm going through stuff I don't understand. Why am I going through this right now? You see, we will be quick to answer that from a human perspective. Well, we're going through that because of this. Or that. We've made this decision in this circumstance. But we are not willing to go to God and ask this. And this is one of the greatest questions you can ask. God, what is your purpose in this? It's kind of two sides of this, right? Things are going awesome. Things are going great, man. Something just happened to you and you're like, wow, I'm so blessed. And we can, we can just live in that moment and we can live out of that moment never stopping to ask, God, why did you bless me with that? Do you think that that's true? We can just take that and go, yeah, I deserve that. Oh, why, why's going good? I was talking to someone last week and they said, uh, they're living the dream. And I, every time somebody says, living the dream, I'm always like, really? <laughs> they're like, yeah. And they've doubled down. I'm living the dream, man. They couldn't get any better than this. And I'm like, Geez, that's awesome for you. I, I can think of a lot of ways this can get better for me, <laughs> you know. But when it gets better, do we say, God, why are you making this better for me? What is your purpose in my blessing? Do you ask? On the other side, and much more like the text today, Jesus said, son of man must be killed. Why? Why would that be required? Are you willing to go to God in your circumstance, in your brokenness, Maybe something was coming up and you thought, this is going to be a sure thing, man. We got this, psh, no problem or whatever. Everything's been lining up. Everything's going to go great. And then, bam, something happens. It just knocks you off your feet. 
And we can sit around and we can lick our wounds and we can think about, you know, what, and we'll, but and that's fine, man. I'm not mad. We do that, right? But do you ever stop and say to the God of all creation, the God who numbered your days, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, the God who caused his Holy Spirit to dwell in you in such a way that you would believe the good news of Jesus, do you ever stop for a moment and say, God, what is your purpose in this suffering? What are you trying to teach me? See, I think that's the best question you can ask. Because we can get caught up in what we see and miss the point of what God is doing. God is doing eternal things in our lives. Make no mistake about it. He's doing eternal things. And we can only see temporal. I, I you know, speculation would be, they don't want to know what he's talking about because he said some things that have been hard already and they're like, this is going to be a hard answer. We don't want it. But what about you? Do you ask, God, what is he doing? I think it's, it's so worth our time to do that. And I think whenever we hear God say something, we ought to listen to the answer then. It's his purpose. It's his desire. He has a plan. And live in that space instead of living in our own space of either taking for granted all he's given us for ourselves or believing that somehow our suffering is unique or without purpose. It's crazy. So they go along and they, they, the 33 says, they come to Capernaum now. They're wondering about this whole son of man must be killed thing. They want to ask Jesus, but they come to Capernaum. And by the way, I did a little dig on this because I got time to do it. And I was thinking, okay, well, where they come from, where they go to? And I think it was Bethsaida where they were before and they were doing all the other stuff that we read about. Now they're in Capernaum. And I was thinking, how far is that? It's beginning to get practical. Like how far did they go to get to Capernaum when they entered in this place? It's about 27 miles. That's cool. That's about here to St. Louis-ish on foot. They've been walking this whole time. This strikes me, right? Because when Jesus is teaching, we can maybe have him set in their static teaching, but he's moving, moving, moving while he's teaching. You know, it's a kinetic experience, right? He, he's a kinetic teacher or, or something like that. So they come to Capernaum, and when he's in the house, I th by the way, this is a caveat here, but I think, I think Bethsaida to Jerusalem is like 200 and 15 miles. That's, a, that's memory. It might be wrong a little bit. It was hundreds of miles. So th this is a journey toward his destiny, right? This is on the road. So they come to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, now get this, what were you arguing about on the road, or what were you discussing or dialoguing about on the road? So while they've been walking, they've been having a conversation behind Jesus' back, if you will, and, and he wastely gets to Capernaum, and he says, what were you discussing? Now look at verse 34. But they kept quiet. They did not open their mouths because on the way they had discussed amongst themselves who was the greatest. <laughs> this is what they're thinking about. Jesus says the Son of Man must be killed and, and, and after being killed be raised. They won't ask him about that, but then they began to say, who is the greatest among us? <laughs> right? Um, which, is, which is funny. By the way, if you read the text here, um, they don't answer. They never, they said they kept quiet, but they never, they never did answer his question, which is pretty direct. What were you discussing on the road? We're not going to talk to Jesus about that either. <laughs> well, we've been talking about this whole time because I think I'm greater than you. You think you're greater than me. We think he's greater than both of us put together. And they're beginning to kind of create some hierarchy of saints, some haves and have-nots, some special people. Unless you believe this is incorrect, this theme will return in the text very soon. It will come up again 
in an even more bold way. So don't think in this moment Jesus does all the teaching needs to be done to get them to stop and to pay attention to what he's trying to teach them. Because even after this, their hearts go right back to that. Who's the greatest among us? Let's don't ask Jesus about the hard stuff, but let's find out who is the best one of us right here. Who is, oh, by the way, who is the megas? <laughs> That's the word, mega disciple, right? Who's like that guy out front, like, I have the most faith. I have the holiest thoughts. Um, I am the megas. Who's the greatest? Now look at what he does, 35. And this is so cool because we're going to kind of turn turn the page a little bit into how we can serve Jesus in our lives. And this is what Jesus does with, without interruption here. 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12, there's his number right there, and said, anyone who wants to be first will be last and the servant of all. Or anyone who wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. But that can be translated either way there. They must be or they will be. If you want to be first, you're going to be the very last. Right? That's interesting to me. And this is one of our favorite things in Christian circles to talk about is this first and last thing. You know, Usually we think of that whenever uh, we're waiting to get food somewhere and there's a buffet or something. No, you go before me. Or going through a door. You ever try to go through a door with a Christian? That's so annoying sometimes, isn't it? After you. No, after you. No, after you. Take the last piece of pizza. No, no, you take the last pizza. no. And then the server takes a pizza, and you're like, hey, bring the pizza back. We're going to eat that. Somebody's going to eat it. You want to be first? I don't want to be first. I'm going to try to be last. We love that, don't we? But Jesus is teaching something here. He's like, if your heart is caught up in who's going to be number one, you're missing the point because you must be last, and you must be willing to serve everyone. And then he does this, 36. This is all connected. He takes a child, and he has the child stand among them. Check it out. Taking the child in his arms, he then teaches them. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Right? And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but welcomes the one who sent me. This is, see, this can be disconnected teaching. You can say, well, you know, I've, I've heard Jesus say this before, right? We've heard that taught before. We've heard the first and last taught before. But here in the same teaching kind of session, Jesus begins to expound on the issue of their hearts. Maybe they were afraid of the question, why must he be killed? Why must he rise again? If you're willing, if you want to be first, if you want to serve me, you must be last and serve everyone. And he takes his child in his arms. Here's the kind of Reader's Digest version or the Cliff's Notes. If you want to Welcome Jesus, welcome a child. That's what it says. Like on its face value. If you want to be, who's the greatest among us? Who's, the, who's in charge of the most? Uh, if you want to be greatest, sit down and wrap your arms around a kid. That's what he's teaching here. He puts this child in the midst of them. I, I want to get the scene a little bit here, right? Jesus has now entered into a house. We heard that read. They've been on a road for 27 miles, give or take, maybe 30, right, to get to this house in Capernaum. There's been this crazy discussion on the road of fear and also of boldness in other ways for the disciples. And then he invites them in and he, sa- he scatters these 12 around him. They're kind of all hunkered in. He's on the ground and then he takes the child and he holds it and he says, if you want to welcome me, you welcome a child. 
Or when you welcome a child like this, you welcome me. Why? Why? Is it because kids are so cute? Like, is it because they're so sweet? Like, is there something intrinsic? You know? I mean, think about this for a minute. We just had Chris up here on the stage with these kids, teaching them about Jesus. And then we have people right now in the back room, they're teaching kids about Jesus. And then we have people in the nursery right now sitting with kids and teaching them about Jesus. And you, you think, well, how, how, do you, how do you know? Because that's what we're doing. And, and I know for some of us we say, man, I just, kids, ugh, geez, get, you know, I can't deal with kids. But it, I think if that's our position, maybe we don't understand the truth of what it means as a believer in Jesus to receive a child. If you think about, if you think about the sin-soaked world we live in, children are the most susceptible, vulnerable, to be harmed. By who? God? No. By us. By one another. Us, right? We talked last week about that, the, the boy who was afflicted since he was a child, right? And, 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 and well, you know, that's when that started. And he was now dealing with these issues and it was affecting his whole family. Here you have again, Jesus saying, you want to you love me well? You love a child well. You receive a child in my name. Is that what the word says this morning? You receive a child in my name, and you receive me. I think, now listen to me. I think if we saw children like we want to see Jesus, it would change everything. Come here, you little image bearer of God. You know? <laughs> Maybe, maybe whenever we see a kid, he's not acting like Jesus at all. <laughs> Do, I mean, you've got to say, like, come here, you little devil, right? Have you ever heard that? But that's Jesus. Hmm. Come on. I mean, maybe that's Jesus hurting. Maybe that's Jesus not feeling safe. Maybe that's Jesus just wondering, does anyone love me? Come on. Do you see it? I remind of Mama Lane who said, get on your knees looking at a child's eyes and treat him like a person, like someone who deserves love, not as an inconvenience to be dealt with, not as something to be shifted away. Oh, if I could just not have these kids, then I could have, have the life I always wanted. And maybe the life you always needed is caught up in doing something like this, receiving a child well. And by the way, don't miss it. Jesus wraps his arms around these children. Like, this isn't like, he's not like, come here, kid. Okay, you see this kid here? Like, that's not what Jesus is doing at all. It's not some object lesson for him. It's real. It's authentic. It's embracing. He says, come here, man. So, you see this kid right here? You want, you want to welcome me? You welcome this kid. And then he says, and when you welcome this child, you welcome me. And you welcome the one who sent me, which, by the way, is God, God's self. Welcome to my house, God. You know, you want to, you want to, I heard this week talking about hospitality. You want to become a hospitable person? Start seeing Jesus in other people. When you don't have time for somebody, start seeing Jesus in them. All of a sudden, your schedule will open up. You know what? I do have time for you right now. Come in and sit down. Let me love you well. See, Jesus is teaching this truth. And by the way, I bet you, I bet you these disciples, when they were thinking about who's the greatest, weren't thinking about receiving children, right? Probably wasn't on their agenda. 
So he says, this is what you do. You want to serve me? And, and this ties back into how can you be a servant of all? Well, start with welcoming children. That's how you can serve everyone. Start by welcoming children. Um, by the way, one of the things that I talked to um, the church about last Sunday at um, Quarterly Town Hall is we're hoping to do maybe some outreach this summer to children in our community. Just tell them God loves them. Call them like VBS one days instead of doing a big VBS and just busting out. And so, if, and just kind of popping up. This has been an idea percolating for years at Hammond Bible Church. It'd be so cool to do that. God thought it was a good idea too. Like, good idea. Um, okay, so, so, you know, we, we have uh, this opportunity to receive children in the name of Jesus Christ, man. How cool is that? All right. So then this goes, rolls right over, right? Whoever um, uh, welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but welcomes one who sent me. Verse 38. Teacher, then John says, this is now John, James, uh, um, Peter, right? This is John. Uh, Teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop it um, because he is not following us. I know your Bible might say he is not one of us, but the word is following there. He's not following us. We told him, you stop that um, casting out demons thing. Probably thought pretty confidently. Jesus would be like, yeah, that's right. You know, he shouldn't do that without me around. And this is what Jesus' answer was. Don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Because whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ or Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. And then he's going to go into another teaching. We're going to stop right there, but he's going to say, and if another one, and anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble. So there's a whole bunch of teaching Jesus does here on the simple question where they've been misunderstanding things, and then John says, okay, so um, Jesus, there was this guy, I, you almost kind of hear the pass, him passing over that issue of children and welcoming God, and he's like, oh, and by the way, something else, Jesus, there was this guy who was casting out demons. And, and isn't it interesting, he says, but we told him to stop doing that because he is not following us. And you might be like I was shocked that Jesus would want that ministry to continue. Right? You might think like the disciples and like I would. Jesus would be like, stop that. You're not the son of God. I am. Don't do that. But what we realize here is that Jesus teaches something that he has applied equally through his entire ministry, which is this idea. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Right? Remember when he taught that? He was casting out demons himself. Do you remember the story? He was casting out demons himself. And the Pharisees came and said, it's by the power of Beelzebub that you cast out demons. And Jesus said, how is that possible? Because Beelzebub would be against Beelzebub's self. That won't work. What he's saying there is, I'm doing the work of God. And what he's saying here is, don't stop them. They're doing the work of God. In my name. Isn't that interesting? Huh? I just want to unpack it a little bit. It's a little squirrely, but I want to unpack it a little bit. This idea that Jesus has given them some very basic things to do. You want to you welcome me? Welcome a child. Uh, don't think you're going to be the greatest. You're going to serve everyone. That's the role you have to play. And immediately they kind of jump back into this hierarchy of power and authority. And they say, well, we, we've been telling people to stop doing things. And he says, don't do that. If they're doing things that are powerful in my name, they cannot immediately turn and say anything evil about me. You see, what he's saying is that what they're doing is not of themselves, it is of my name. It's, it's my name. It's not about them. 
And it's certainly not about you. And you think, okay, well, what does this have to do with anything? I wonder. Jesus had given clear instructions to welcome children in his name. And by doing so, you welcome him. I wonder in our lives how much time we spend bickering about other Christians and what they're doing or not doing. I wonder how often we're, well now, Jesus, we, over there, those guys, would you tell them they, they should stop that doing, because I don't know why they're doing that over there. And what we're really saying is, I don't know why they aren't doing it over here with me, or I don't know why I'm not invited to go over there and do it with them over there. I don't understand why we're not included, because, you know, we're your family, and we should all, why aren't we all together in this, right? And, and Jesus is like, no, it's my name. Don't miss the point. The, this, this group of believers, of disciples, of learners, began to think that it was only for us. Matter of fact, come on church, this still happens today. We, we control the gospel. Have you heard that? Um, we are the one true church. Have you heard that at all in Christian circles? Yeah, I know you go to church, that's adorable, but we, we go to the real church. You know what I'm saying? I know you were baptized, but we have the true baptism over here. I mean, it's not one. It's not one church saying it. It's a whole bunch of churches that say that. And it's us when we say that when we're like, hey, what are they doing? That's not part of what you're doing. And Jesus says, do you leave them alone? What does he really say in there? It's like, I feel like this. It's like, stay in your lane. Do you know who I am? Like, if I wanted to stop, I would stop it. And even now today, there's people, I know people here who would say, yeah, but I've read good doctrine, and there's some bad doctrine, and they're paving the way to help people, and all this. And we act, now get it, as if we are more concerned with other people's eternal destiny than God, God's self. That's a lie. That's a lie. We are not more concerned with saving God's people than God is himself with saving his people. And so we can trust him with that. I don't know why they're doing that. But praise God. That dude got healed. That demon got cast out. Praise God. Not stop it. Which if you think about it, is exactly what the Pharisees were saying to Jesus. Stop it. Just stop it. How often is that our response? When good, godly work is happening and we feel justified. I mean, John didn't think he was wrong. He was confident. He was probably kind of, hey, teacher. You notice that? Rabbi. I did something good while you were talking to the other disciples. I did something good. We told them to knock it off. Isn't that interesting? So we have this simple teaching about welcoming Jesus. Then we have this overexpression of human responsibility in trying to forbade someone from doing something that was done in the name of Jesus Christ. Right? And we often do that ourselves. We should stop, by the way. I want to be very clear. You know? Stop. Trust God enough to believe that he knows what he is doing and be faithful to the mission that God has called you to. See, I think that that's the funny thing. I think that often when we do that, we're not really worried about them doing things right or wrong. We just don't want to do it ourselves and we want them to stop. Because if we have to do that, that changes things for us. We have to allow that. Jesus says this amazing thing. He says, whoever, anyone, anyone who is not against us is for us. That, that's the exact opposite view that many people take of the world. Everyone's against me. Everyone's against Man, have you seen how the government is doing? Man, have you seen how my neighbors do this? Everyone's against the Christian faith. Everyone's against what God's doing in the world. I don't know that that's true. I know there's an enemy who likes to undermine the work of God. 
But I think fundamentally, if believers would go out and just do what we're called to do, there's a whole bunch of the world that's kind of indifferent about it. Let me give you an example. This week, we had some things going on in the school district. The district called the pastor and said, would you come in and set just in case you're needed? They weren't against can't God. Can't have God in the school? Yeah, no, yeah. They said, come on in. Have a seat. Now, they weren't promoting it, but it's available. Bible studies happen. Prayer out here in the very front of this middle school. They gather around a pole and they pray. No one stops that. You got a kid going to school, they want to pray before they eat the lunch? Hey, take a minute and pray. Right? And we act like there's all these oppressors, man. Check it out. Anyone who's not against us is for us. Right? He can't do powerful things in my name and then speak evil of me. And then Jesus goes on to teach something. He says in 41, I tell you the truth, that anyone who would give, now this is beautiful, you a cup of water in my name because you belong to me will not lose their reward. <laughs> so I want you to see it again. He kind of brings it back around to simple things. He says, you want to welcome me, welcome children. You welcome children, you welcome me. And then they say, well, we're stopping all this exercise and things. He's like, don't stop that. But by the way, if someone gives you a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to me, they will not lose their reward. They'll be blessed because they've done something kind to you. They're going to receive a blessing for that. Simple, simple. And it's all connected. And we, we ought to see it that way. It's all connected. These teachings are simple. Receive children. Give out cups of cold water. Hey, check it out, though. How about receiving a cup of cold? How about, how about being willing to let someone bring something to you and saying thank you for that? That's very kind of you. I appreciate it. Jesus says if that happens, they will be blessed and they will not lose their reward. Right? But then he turns to harder teaching. Because you want to get some hard teaching? Here he goes. He's going to jump right into the deep end of the pool. And he says this. And, and that's a conjunctive word there. It means it connects to everything taught before it. Right? So there's a simple stuff. Receive children. You know, don't worry about all the people that are doing it in my name because it's fine. And, you know, receive cups of cold water. It's going to be a blessing. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. That sounds bad. That sounds bad, right? I mean, I don't know if anybody's watched The Sopranos. I happen to have not watched it. But I always think about, when I think about people getting tossed in the river with cement, think about the mafia. I just do. I don't know anybody in the mafia. But you hear the stories. It's terrifying. Jesus says, if anyone, check it out. Where is that child at? Seems he's still there. Right here. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, right, to trip. Matter of fact, the, I love this. The work is, is uh, scandalous to, to have a scandal in their lives, to create scandal. If you cause one of these, it would be better that you would have a millstone. You know what a millstone was? It's a great big grinding wheel, right, that was turned to, to thresh grain, right? It just smushed it. And I, would, I was thinking, how can I get a millstone to church on Sunday? Like, that'd be awesome, <laughs> but impossible maybe. This is, a millstone isn't even like a cement block around your neck, right? A millstone is like this huge wheel of cement rock, right? And it's got a convenient hole in the middle so you can put a chain through it. And then you put the other one around your neck and then someone throws it in the sea. That sounds bad, you think? If anyone causes a little one to stumble, it's better. It would be better for that person to have that. And that's terrifying. No, that's, that's not better than 
anything, Jesus. Oh, yes, it is. It's better than someone that causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble. And by the way, I think it's fair to say he means little children, and he means people who believe in him. It's better. Don't, don't cause people to stumble. Don't, let's don't do that. I mean, it's better for that person that he would throw in the sea and drown, essentially. It's implied there, right, because you're not coming up from that. It'd be terrifying, man. And then he starts to talk about this power of heaven and hell and this reality of the results of our defiance with God. Get that straight, right? It's, it's not that he's wanting, but he wants you to know, check it out in verse 43, if your hand, and this is a tough text, but if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where there is fire, where the fire never goes out, and the worm does not die, and the fire is never quenched. 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut your foot off, because it's better for you to enter cripple and to have, than to have two feet, enter life crippled, by the way, and then to have two feet and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck your eye out because it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I've heard the crazy stories about people who have literally cut off parts of their body. I think that misses the point, but the point is serious. Real quick, hands, feet, eyes. That's the illustration. You see it? The things that you do, right? It would be better if there are things that you do that are keeping you from eternal life that you would stop doing them. I don't really think God, I mean, you could say, yeah, literally, no, you meant cut your hand off. Okay. I, I just don't know how many people Jesus wanted sawing off their hands. But things that you do, your feet, what would that be? Maybe the places you choose to go, I'm just going to sneak on over here for a minute. I'll be back in a second, Jesus. No, stop. Kingdom is worth more than that. It'd be better that you stop doing that. Stop going there. than that you would lose your inheritance in the kingdom of God, that you would end up in hell. And then the third is the things that you see or perceive, the things that you choose to look at, right? It'd be better for you that you would lose your ability to see than that you would continue in sin and be separated from God. Three things. Hands, feet, eyes. What are you doing? Who is he talking to? All those sinners out in the world. Well, you better stop. No, disciples. Stop it. It's better. It's better for you to stop doing that stuff. And this is the problem with sin, if I can just say this this morning. We believe in the moment that indulging in the sin is better than what God will have if we listen to him and don't. We believe in the moment that's better than God. This is better than what we might get from God if we don't. You see what's happening in the equation there? And Jesus is teaching his disciples. These same ones, by the way, who are saying, who's the greatest among us? Oh, we told God to stop. He says, stop. It's better for you to enter. Listen, you, have, you ever had God remove stuff from your life and, and you're like, I like it. Don't take it away. That, that could be God's mercy to you. To draw you into his kingdom because it's better that you would enter wounded and, and harmed in some way, but enter than to be separated from God. In the text it says three times in there where the worms 
don't die and the fire doesn't stop. Jesus didn't think this was some kind of theoretical, hypothetical, theological prospect. He's teaching something. You don't want to be outside of the kingdom of God. You don't want to be outside of true life. Because in that place, there's suffering. And you're going to wish you had cut off your hand or your foot or your eye. Do you see that? I think that disconnects for us in our modern. Who would do that? Because none of us take God that seriously. Oh, if we did, we'd be like, if God says, you've got to stop. You'd be like, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Why? Because you're better than that. The hope that you, you might have something for me is better than that. Whatever that sin is. And I know for some of us right now today, it's like hard stuff. Like, oh, stop preaching like that. I get it. But it's better. That's what it is. Jesus saying for punishment, it's like, it's going to bring you to eternal life. It's going to bring you to heaven. It's going to bring you to glory, right? The kingdom of God. That's what's at stake here. As a matter of fact, if you look at the three things that are connected to the hands, the feet, and the eyes, it's true life, right? It's, um, let's see here. It's uh, true life, and it's um, the kingdom of God. Oh, and, and by the way, these worms, you might go, oh, there's worms. But these are like eating worms. They never stop eating. They're just eating all the time. They're eating worms. Sounds awful. Ugh. Don't, man. Jesus is teaching about sin and about the cost of sin and about the cost of causing others to sin. Ooh, listen. And the cost of sinning ourselves. What would it be? Everyone. Look at verse 49. Everyone be salted by fire. We're going to end with this. Jesus says, salt's good. I love salt, by the way. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? And he says this, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with who? One another. Huh? Salt. Connect it, 48, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, but everyone will be salted with fire. I thought that was remarkable. That's in the Bible. Everyone's going to have a little bit, a, a, a little bit of that. If I may be so bold, you know how salt comes out of a salt shaker? Right? Sometimes it's my, uh, sometimes somebody like does a joke and they unscrew the lid and they go, ah, the food's ruined. You know what I'm saying? But a little bit of salt goes, ooh, hey, I gotta pay attention, right? That's different. Check it out. Salted with fire. We, we talk about that, right? I, I go to a church in Florida when I'm down there called Salty Church. I love Salty Church. I love Salty Church. I do. I love the people at Salty Church. I love the pastors at Salty Church. I love Salty Church. Helps that it's in Florida, just saying. But I do love it. But you know, I never thought about that. I was reading this, I'm like, oh yeah, Salty, you're gonna have a little bit of hell in your life. You know, I don't want any hell in my life, man. I'm, a, I'm born for the kingdom, man. I'm going, I'm going to be with Jesus and glory. Yeah, I, I'm too. But you're gonna have a little bit of, oh, God. Ah. You ever had salt in a wound? Ah. Yeah, you got a cut there, man. Pay attention. There's all kinds of things we say about salt, but check it out. He says, have a little salt in yourselves. Have a little recognition. It ain't right. I got to stop. I got to start. I got to change. Have peace with one another. That's the message, right? All this, Jesus says, this is it. He says, I'm going to get you alone so I can teach you some things that are really important with my disciples. We ought to pay attention.
don't know what that is in your life. I don't know if you lament it, if you celebrate it. I don't know if you invite God into those spaces or not. I'm just going to encourage you to do that. And you know what? Guess what, man? We serve an enduringly patient God who loves us and forgives us and is welcoming to us. And we ought to celebrate that. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to confess sins. Because God is the forgiver of sins. God's the deliverer from, fi- from fire, from hell. All right. Pray with me if you would, and we'll have a final song. We'll, we'll go out into the rainy day. Father God, we thank you so much for the chance we've had to hear your word. We thank you for the truth of the simplicity of your teaching. We pray, Father, you forgive us for the ways that we kind of convolute your word, twist it around, pull it out, and make it say what we want it to say. Father, we have some hard teaching today. Pray that we would become the kind of people, all of us, that would welcome children in your name, that would see you in them, that would celebrate, celebrate the gift you've given us. What a pleasure, man. What a pleasure, God, to have a chance to do that. And Father, for uh, our sin, may we confess it. And questions, maybe we ask them. I mean, just, we love that you're an honest God. You're not afraid of truth. You made truth. You are truth. Like, we know you. Father, we just want to be your people, and, and whatever it is, we got to stop. Would you, would you convict us of that? It would stop. And you would just welcome us into your kingdom and your life. We are imperfect people, but we follow you, the perfect God, and we de- rely completely upon you, Father, for salvation and for sanctification may be glorified. We love you so much as we celebrate and we trust and we pray and we hope and we long together. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.